Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Skin disease appears differently in all skin tones, making it easier to see some things and harder to see others depending on your shade. But many dermatologists are uncomfortable treating patients of color because they haven't been trained to see the full spectrum of skin disease. In her talk at TED Monterey in 2021, Dr. Genesee Lester shares what this disparity means and why something has to be done about it. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org slash teens. Now, what's next? A podcast from Morgan Stanley helps make sense of life during and after the pandemic. With nearly two decades of experience reporting on culture and the economy, host Sonari Glinton meets people who are looking for solutions to the cracks exposed by the pandemic. From how we care for our children and the elderly to what we do with shopping malls, these are stories of everyday people trying to figure things out and where they're finding hope. Search for Now What's Next wherever you listen to podcasts. The skin is the human body's largest organ and one of the most powerful predictors of our health. A hallmark feature of Lyme disease is erythema migrans. Lyme disease is a tick-borne illness present in over 80 countries and estimated to affect 476,000 people in the United States each year. Dermatologists like me are doctors of the skin trained to diagnose and treat skin disease. And this is how we're trained to see erythema migrans, as a bullseye-shaped rash that ranges from red to pink. But this is not at all what it looks like in dark skin. There are hues of violet, of magenta, and even dark brown. If we were to rely only on dermatology textbooks to teach us how to identify skin disease, we would frequently misdiagnose it in patients of color. And this is a huge problem because Lyme disease needs to be treated. Left untreated, Lyme disease has significant health ramifications, including arthritis and even nerve damage. And what's more is we've seen an increase in the incidence of Lyme disease, a phenomenon attributed in part to climate change. As we continue to see and experience the effects of climate change, we may see more people infected with Lyme disease, making it even more important that we're able to accurately diagnose it. Now, the story of erythema migrans is emblematic of a larger issue. In the United States, 47% of graduating dermatology residents report feeling uncomfortable diagnosing skin disease in patients with dark skin. 47%. I just want that to sink in for a second. 
This is a staggering statistic. And this means that the people who have just undergone their most intensive training to become doctors of the skin don't feel comfortable diagnosing and treating all patients. And even so, they graduate from residency and they're eligible to become board-certified dermatologists, qualified to care for all people. Now I wonder, could this be why we still see and experience healthcare disparities in all aspects of medicine, including dermatology? I believe there's a connection between the fact that almost half of dermatology residents feel uncomfortable diagnosing and treating certain patients and the poor health outcomes of those same patients. I speak to patients of color all the time who express an awareness of the fact that their dermatologist is unfamiliar with diagnosing skin disease in their skin tone or uncomfortable teaching them how to care for their hair or scalp. And I wonder, what does this awareness that your doctor is uncomfortable with you due to the physician-patient relationship, to trust in the medical establishment, or to the likelihood that someone returns for additional care? The problem in dermatology is that we're not taught how skin disease appears in all skin tones. As a medical student, my classmates and I quickly realized that we only saw dark skin when we were learning about syphilis. And this observation is supported by research that I published in the British Journal of Dermatology in 2019 that shows an overrepresentation of dark skin in chapters focused on sexually transmitted infections, even while those same skin tones are underrepresented elsewhere in the same textbook. What does this do to impressionable learners? Does it make them think that someone with dark skin is more likely to have a sexually transmitted infection? Now, I know some of you may be thinking, I know an algorithm that can solve this, or machine learning to the rescue, and I'm here to gently disagree. And that's because the data from which these algorithms learn are the same photos that overrepresent dark skin in certain skin conditions, even while underrepresenting them in others. In other words, these algorithms will be as biased as we are unless we make significant change. I started the Skin of Color program at the University of California, San Francisco, where I work with medical students and residents in an effort to begin to help them unlearn some of these harmful patterns that make it easier to see some things, like dark skin with syphilis, and harder to see others, like dark skin with erythema migrans. I teach everything from how to identify inflammation in dark skin to how to talk to a black woman about her hair care practices. And one important fact that I always make sure to mention is that it's neither good nor common for black women to wash their hair every day. And any treatment regimen focused on taking care of the hair and scalp should reflect this important understanding. My work at the Skin of Color program, as well as the work of similar programs across the country demonstrate the importance of creating a dedicated educational environment for residents and medical students to learn the full spectrum of skin disease as they appear in all patients, regardless of skin tone. This is an important first step on a long road towards eliminating healthcare disparities in dermatology, but let's commit to taking this journey together. Thank you. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update.
listening to Sky News Climate Cast with me, Anna Jones. And me, Katerina Vitozzi. And on the menu this week, how bad really is meat for the environment? Yes, we're going to be looking at the climate impact of the meat industry and asking, what's the beef with beef? <laughs> we are. And we're also going to be asking our guests if we can still eat meat and care about climate change. Plus, finding ways to make vegetables delicious with the plant-based cook, writer and entrepreneur extraordinaire Ella Mills from Deliciously Ella. Can you believe that after seven months of recording this podcast uh, and talking about COP26, we're now only two weeks away? (laughs) I feel like we've got a lot to do. (laughs) I know. Imagine how the politicians are feeling. Yes, absolutely. Lots to prepare ahead of it. And we will be talking a lot more about what uh, is on the agenda in terms of the negotiations at COP26. But Anna, I'm interested to know what is going to be on the menu because you'll be there at Glasgow, won't you? What, What do you expect? That's such a good question. And do you know what? Whenever I go out for a meal with my daughter, she always looks at the menu about three days before. So she always knows exactly what she wants. And I've been doing that a bit with COP. <laughs> and it's quite interesting, actually. There has been a bit of a push to get the organisers to commit to a plant-based menu because of all the, the, the climate implications of eating mm. meat. But it looks like at the moment we're being told that there's a wide range of dishes, including plant-based options, uh, but they're stopping short of saying that meat's going to be off the menu. So that's quite interesting. Even the food is a, a subject of, of potential controversy. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, it is indeed, as you say, hard uh, to talk about climate change without mentioning the impact of meat, isn't it? It is because meat accounts for around 12 to 15 percent of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And if meat was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world after China and the US. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah. And earlier this year, the UK was warned that meat consumption needs to be cut by 30 percent by 2030 to slow global warming and free up land that's currently used to rear livestock and switch it to land used to absorb carbon and boost nature. And Katerina, cows in particular release a huge amount of methane. That's the kind of polite way of putting it. I mean, that methane (laughs) emerges from both ends. But interestingly, apparently more of the methane, I'm told, comes uh, via burps than the other option. But I've never seen a cow burp. Maybe they do it very discreetly (laughs) and politely. Maybe you're not hanging out with them for long enough. Anyway, they also drink millions of gallons of water as well as take up huge amounts of land, which campaigners say could otherwise be used for forests or wetlands. Yeah, and we've been taking a look at some research from the University of Oxford uh, about the carbon impact and the environmental and climate impact of beef. And they found that eating one beef burger a week for a year emits the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as a return flight from London to Spain uh, or driving a petrol car for one and a half thousand miles. They're extraordinary statistics, aren't yeah, they? Really are. They also note that not all burgers are equal. So when the ingredients are sourced from the UK and Europe, the emissions are actually three times fewer than ones made in Latin America, for example. And the bulk of emissions from the food system come from developing countries like China, India, Brazil and Indonesia. And of course, it's not 
just beef that makes up the livestock and meat industry. Things like poultry, chickens and turkeys, for example, aren't great for the environment either. Uh, chicken food is largely made up of soy, which comes from the Amazon rainforest. Uh, not to mention that 200 chickens need to be house fed and slaughtered to get the same amount of meat as a single cow. Now, this information isn't new. It's something we've known for a while that eating meat is bad for the planet and for the sake of the climate, the world needs to eat less of it. But knowing what we do, are people actually changing their behaviour and will people really stomach giving up meat in the name of climate change? So we are seeing there are more people following a vegetarian diet, but I think more people are reducing how much meat they're consuming rather than cutting it out completely. Christina Stewart is a health behaviours researcher at Oxford University and a lead researcher in a study that recently revealed people in the UK are indeed eating less meat. In 2018-19 we found 5% of people identified as vegetarian or vegan, up from 2% the decade before, whereas market research suggests that around 40% of people are reducing their meat consumption. Wow, so that's quite a significant chunk then. Are you able to break down the meat consumption into different types of meat? You know, in more micro detail, is it less red meat, less white meat? Is that all the colours? What other meats are there? <laughs> no, Purple I meat is high. <laughs> and all the meats in between. Are you able to break it down like that? Yeah, absolutely. So we found that red and processed meat consumption has decreased over time. And that's largely because of people eating less beef, lamb and sausages. Um, but white meat has been increasing over time, which is largely due to uh, poultry. And is it happening fast enough? Behaviours are changing, but if we are going to look at it from a climate change perspective, does that change need to happen faster? Yes, um, it does. So over so between 2008-09 to 2018-19, we saw that meat consumption has decreased by 17.4 grams per person per day, which was just under a 17% reduction. Um, and if you think about that in context with the national food strategy that said in the next 10 years we have to reduce our meat consumption by 30%, that's quite a shift. So we, we do need to be accelerating yeah. that reduction. So what would that look like? So there's a few different strategies we know to be effective. So one of them being increasing the relative availability of meat-free options. It seems quite obvious, but it is quite effective. Um, similarly, yeah. positioning. So if you reposition meat-free options to more prominent positions, whether that's on a menu or in a supermarket or in a canteen pass, sort of naming, appearance, um, things like that. What should we be aiming for, Christina? How many meat-free days, how many meat-free meals a week should, you know, should, should we be aiming for, for not only to personal health, but for our planet's health too? For example, the National Food Strategy, which has said our meat consumption needs to decrease by 30% in the next 10 years. If you're someone who eats meat every day, that would look like two meat-free days a week. Um, so it doesn't need to be super daunting. Um, it, it just depends on where you are, really. We know that we need to be limiting our red and processed meat consumption to a maximum of 70 grams per day. So that was set by the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition due to links with colorectal cancer. Um, and we know a third of adults in the UK are exceeding that currently. And what does that look like on the plate, 70 grams of processed meat? I'm just trying to imagine <laughs> how much a rasher of bacon or a, or a, to a typical sausage weighs. I think it's around about the size of, sort of a pack of cards. Mm. Oh, right. OK. That's a nice yeah. chunky bit of bacon, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's like, what, a couple of two, two or three sausages probably, isn't it? Maybe a few more. 
So although we're eating less meat, it's not likely to be off the menu for a while. But can we eat meat and still care about climate change? I'm a dairy farmer in South Wales and I'm milking approximately 200 cows. I'm a third generation farmer, so I was born on the farm. Abby Reader is a dairy farmer from Wales. So there's not a lot of sleep <laughs> that happens on your farm by the sounds of it. <laughs> sounds tiring. Up with the cows and down with the sun. Yeah, sleep is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> so as a third generation farmer, how has sustainability sort of crept in to, to the way that you do things on the farm? Well, it's, it's really interesting. I suppose when we look at sustainability in terms of our carbon footprint, we're talking about three things on a farm. Uh, one is using renewable energy. Another one is sequestering carbon. But probably the key one for all farmers that we underestimate is improving efficiency. So we're talking about livestock and we're talking about methane production from livestock. So if we accept that methane is a very strong gas for trapping heat, then as livestock farmers, we need to make sure we can get more from less or the same from being more efficient. And, and that's what it's all about. It's, it's just getting better at what we do. So when we're told that in this country we need to cut our meat consumption by about 30% within 10 years for the sake of the planet, do you agree with that? You know, obviously, as a livestock farmer, I'm going to be a little bit biased, but I find this argument so one-dimensional. We forget the bigger picture. We forget about the rural communities and the jobs that are supported by these by these farms. We forget about our responsibility as a nation to be able to feed ourselves to a certain degree. We forget about being able to eat a balanced diet and the importance of meat as part of that diet. So it, it's just not, it's too one-dimensional. Let's, let's, let's forget about meat and let's all eat plants. So do you think farmers feel a bit under a attack then you know you say you feel like this argument by climate campaigners is too one-dimensional and it doesn't look at the whole rural environment and the rural picture yeah I think sometimes when we focus a lot on these arguments it's 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 really um easy as a farmer to feel that we are um we're just being attacked all the time and and people aren't really understanding who we are and what we're about but I do genuinely believe that if we put those those dark messages to one side actually there's a lot of support out there for for livestock production and people are interested in putting meat in their diet and they are they are thinking about healthy balanced eating so you know it, it, you just need to focus on the, the messages coming through what about lab grown meat which we're hearing more and more about at the moment um you talk about the need to have a balanced diet if you could get your meat grown in a laboratory people might say that might be that'll be better for the planet. So what's your reaction to that? Do you feel threatened by that at all? Is it a worry to you? Yeah, it certainly is a threat. I mean, it's it's competition. Um, I, you know, it's something that I think about that might be somewhere down the line. I certainly don't think it's anywhere near us in the next 10 years, despite the fact that we're seeing more and more research into this. We're talking about artificially grown food. Um, and, I, you know, we need to ask ourselves, what impact is that truly going to have on the human body? And that could take quite a few years to come through. And how many people will want to risk that if you are if you're struggling with health conditions anyway? Is it appropriate? So there's so many things to consider with it. Coming up, we'll be speaking to Ella Mills, better known as Deliciously Ella, about how a plant based or vegan diet can be good for the planet, good for our health and taste delicious, too. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled. My WhatsApp 
friends chat has been buzzing with excitement at the fact that I'm speaking with you. Oh my God, I love that. Ella, it's really hard to talk to you without calling you deliciously Ella. <laughs> um, but I will just try and call you Ella. Um, so first of all, tell us about how you came to be vegan. Tell us a little bit about the journey that got you there. So ten, it was 10 years ago, actually, 10 and a half years ago now, out of absolutely nowhere, I got very, very ill when I was at university. And kind of cut a long story short, I spent a year in out different hospitals across London, saw all number of different consultants to understand what was going on. I was then diagnosed with a condition um, that affected my autonomic nervous system. So everything that should function as is heart rate, digestive system, et cetera, et cetera, wasn't working properly. I was 21 and I was on steroids, beta blockers, you name it, a whole host of medication, and it just didn't really work. And after a year, I hit an absolute rock bottom with mental health and with physical health. And I realized, you know, there's, there's got to be other things to explore from here and was really started to learn everything I could about how the body worked and how nutrition interplayed with that, but couldn't cook and wasn't particularly interested whatsoever in vegetables. Really? Um, so two, yeah, not even a tiny bit. So <laughs> two pretty kind of big challenges. Really just such an incredible trajectory that you've had. But I mean, was there a sort of a light bulb moment in terms of your own health where you were kind of eating this plant based diet? And you did you sort of, was it a case of you just suddenly felt better or was it kind of a gradual thing very very gradual but and and when I started to change the way I was eating I was still on all my medication at the same time and and nothing happened immediately absolutely not but within a couple of months I realized that there had just been some gradual shift and so you were motivated by your own health issues but as time has gone on has climate awareness been part of your motivation as well absolutely i think that most people come in this space either for health for environmental reasons or for ethical reasons but i think it's it's very hard once you start uncovering and understanding more about this space to leave two of the three behind and certainly from an environmental perspective to me it becomes kind of screamingly obvious and it's certainly absolutely driven forward my passion for what we're doing as a company and the facts speak for themselves really which is that whether you become fully vegan or not we all need to eat increasingly more plants and we've got to eat less red meat and less dairy and we know that I don't think there's a huge debate in in reduction even if it's questioning elimination. But what would you say to the farmers who'll say that there's a rather skewed point of view now as far as meat is concerned they'll say you do need meat as part of a balanced diet and not all farmers are bad farmers some of them are farming sustainably and it's perfectly fine to eat their meat. Of course. And look, I don't, you know, this is an extraordinarily complex topic. And I think it's so easy sometimes for these conversations to be overly simplified. And I also think asking everyone to become a vegan tomorrow is not necessarily a very plausible option. And so I think that the black and white nature of it isn't the solution for everybody. But the stats speak for themselves, which is that we need less meat. And the only way that's going to happen is by changing some of the way in which we farm. We really, really need to replant a lot of the land, which is currently being deforested for agriculture. I mean, that, you know, we can't keep cutting down the Amazon for grazing. Like, it's not it's not possible. So we're going to have to make some switches. For anyone who's slightly daunted by that prospect, either of going vegan or vegetarian for a meal, they might think it's so complicated. There's more ingredients. It's going to take longer. How do you inspire people? How do you get people hooked onto the idea? 
Yeah, and I think that's an absolutely fair point. I mean, they they say that we all have seven recipes, um, which are the seven things that we turn to time and time again. And I think that's probably about right. And so the idea of shifting all of that, you know, when you get home from work and you're tired and you've maybe got other people to feed and family, you know, I totally appreciate the idea at that point of trying to make something you never made before, experiment, maybe your kids will hate it, whatever it is. I totally appreciate it's quite off-putting. But I think, again, it's just about small changes. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I think, you know, you can take a bolognese. It can be half lentil. So it's half beef and half lentil. It doesn't. You don't need to only ever make lentil bolognese from then on. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. What's your take on... Someone saying, well, I love cottage pie, so I'll do a vegetarian cottage pie. Is there a risk then that people would be disappointed because it's not the same as they're used to? Is it better, do you think, to try something totally different and think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with a sweet potato today instead? You know what I mean? Not yeah, try and make I comparisons. I do. And I think there's quite a lot in that. And I think especially given the reality of the fact that most people are going to be more flexitarian versus absolutely committed vegan or vegetarian. I think, again... To me, it makes much more sense on the night that you're going to be plant-based to be focusing on celebrating plant-based ingredients instead of meat mimics, where ultimately it's just not going to be the same experience as a steak because it's made of a cauliflower. It's just, (laughs) or whatever it is, it's just not going to be the same. Whereas if you um, pan fry red onion and garlic um, in coconut oil, and then you add cumin and paprika and curry powder, et cetera, et cetera, and then simmered um, lentils and coconut milk and tomatoes, wilted spinach you could have a delicious dal, say and you could do turmeric roasted cauliflower with it brown rice lime fresh coriander fresh chili and you could have something that's like genuinely so delicious totally plant-based and absolutely not pretending to be anything else and in my mind i think sometimes that's a nicer way of doing it for you when i was really interesting interested by what you said about the fact that you came to this sort of new plant-based lifestyle not a cook not someone that was even remotely interested in vegetables what has been do you think the hardest thing is there anything you miss from the the diet of the diet of your that you used she's to... saying do you miss bacon is that what you're saying <laughs> do you miss bacon well, yes basically <laughs> do you miss bacon do i miss bacon i don't miss bacon but i did miss the ease I re- and that's become that's got yeah. easier that's you know that's really changed especially over the last couple of years but it particularly kind of mm. nine ten years ago when I changed my diet I really missed the ease and the simplicity of everything and you know you open up a restaurant menu and you can have everything in the restaurant and I do miss that absolutely and and that again is changing and it's very exciting to see the speed at which that's changing I mean, you open now a, a recipe supplement in a, a Sunday magazine or a Saturday paper, and there is there are plant-based options in a way that there just weren't before. Yeah, it is, and and the own that's the only way forward in my mind. So I think, as a collective, as a society, as industry, the easier we can make it for people to make those choices and provide genuine alternatives that you actually want to have the more likely we are to take up the environmental challenge that we all need to do. And so I think there is an absolute collective responsibility there. What would you advise then as perhaps for someone who is maybe vegetable reticent, is the phrase I'm going to use, um, what would you suggest as a really easy switch or a really easy thing that they can introduce? Absolutely. I think honestly, it's starting small. I think even if you're so inspired to make big changes I think make big changes over a year over two years 
and just build up so that it is something that is genuinely sustainable for your life um, instead of feeling like the ground's been swept beneath your feet. And so I think breakfast is a great example of that. I mean, if you have cereal, granola for breakfast, having that with oat milk, it's not really any different. And, and start there. And then again, what small switches can you make? So if you're cooking fish or meat for dinner, instead of that being the centerpiece, could you just switch it so that actually that's the side? And so your the vegetable part of the meal um, is actually the, you know, that takes up 75, 80% of the plate. To me, that was certainly the best way as well that I approached it with friends and family. It's just about keeping it slightly familiar um, instead of trying to change everything all at once so maybe save the tofu for year two save the tofu (laughs) for year two a hundred percent I think it is like you know if you were making roast sweet potato wedges as a side just make more of them and have spring onions and chili and things like that instead of um instead of exactly trying to have like a tofurkey for Christmas like you know it's too much say that word again Ella (laughs) a tofurkey Key no no what what was it yeah a tofurkey it's a, tu- a full turkey made out of tofu and <laughs> they are quite big in it in America and you see it and it's honestly it's one of the most revolting looking things you've ever seen and you think no wonder people don't want this for Christmas dinner whereas I think if you talked up a um, a mushroom Wellington <laughs> you could start to get people you know flaky pastry miso in the mushrooms a lot of depth a lot of flavor you could get people on board whereas I think sometimes yeah it can go a bit far so Ella Mills there better known as deliciously Ella making our mouths water making me extremely hungry yeah gosh (laughs) so so perhaps we should I know hunkering for a cauliflower (laughs) exactly so perhaps we should get our teeth into the news of the week now and then we can both race off and and cook something delicious Um, and everything feels like it's a big build up to COP26 now Katrina doesn't it it does but we do know that there is a lot of diplomacy that goes on before the actual event itself so let me give you a bit of a roundup of what we know that's been announced and, and spoken about this week uh, starting with the COP president Alok Sharma so he's been speaking in Paris uh, making big calls for everyone every country every nation to play their part to deliver on emissions targets and obviously a very appropriate place for him to make that statement because it was Paris where the landmark climate agreement was signed back in 2015 uh, and Mr Sharma also said that rich nations were edging towards fulfilling a $100 billion a year pledge to help developing nations. There's disagreement over how that money should be spent as well, isn't there? Yeah, because currently um, under 25% of that $100 billion fund is being used on climate adaptation measures. And that is exactly what some of the world's most climate vulnerable countries say is absolutely necessary for their very survival. For example, Sky News this week has been in Grenada It's a low-lying country and says it is in urgent need of money from rich nations to help them adapt to things like rising sea levels. And countries like Grenada, however small they are, geographically could hold huge influence at COP26 because there is this coalition now of climate vulnerable nations who could act uh, as a bit of a block to key agreements unless their financing calls are met. And then meanwhile here in the UK, 
Yes, here in the UK, another really interesting exclusive by Sky News' deputy political editor, Sam Coates, this week. Uh, he's obtained documents that suggest the British government is getting advice to prioritise economic growth over environmental protections when it comes to trade deals. Now, uh, he has seen documents drawn up by officials in the Department for International Trade. And within that text is guidance uh, that says that environmental safeguards should not be treated as a red line in trade agreements when other countries demand that they are broken. Uh, now we should stress that these papers haven't been seen or approved by cabinet and have only been circulated across a, a Whitehall working group and various officials within Whitehall. But of course, Anna, the timing of seeing these sentiments in black and white so close to COP26 uh, likely to be very embarrassing indeed. And a quick word about Russia as well, Katerina. Yeah, we don't often talk about Russia in this podcast, but this week, uh, Russia, which is the world's fourth largest emitter of carbon, said it would strive to be carbon neutral no later than 2060. Now, President Vladimir Putin said that practical steps had already been taken, but um, we should note that this target puts it on par with what China has pledged. However, that is still around a decade later than scientists say we need to be hitting those targets in order to avoid catastrophic levels of global warming. And then finally, Katerina, we move seamlessly from Vladimir Putin to George Clooney. Yes, who's been speaking about the environment at, a, at his latest film premiere to colleagues far more glamorous than us. They've been meeting up with him uh, at the... <laughs> Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, sure, that's fine. You are pretty glam. Uh, yeah, he, uh, George Clooney, actor, environmentalist, campaigner, uh, at the UK premiere of the latest film he's directed, uh, did talk a little bit about COP26 and what he thought would happen. Uh, let's take a listen to the man himself, shall we? Am I optimistic? No. Am I hopeful? Yes. Uh, listen, there's better chances here than, you know, than we've had in the United States recently. So I'm hopeful that more will be done here. I think some will, but I'm not, I'm not all that optimistic about it. I don't know. I'd like to be. I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Oh, dear. George Clooney. Not sounding terribly optimistic um, or hopeful, but you never know. Two weeks will go until COP. Not too far from London to Glasgow. Maybe he could get the train up there. And... I'll tell you what, I would definitely give him space on the Daily Climate Show. If he wants to come and talk to me, that's fine. <laughs> there you are, George, an open invitation. Well, I think that's a very good place to wrap up this week's episode of Sky News Climate Cast with me, Katerina Badozzi. And me, Anna Jones. Our podcast producer this week was Emma Ray Woodhouse and Tatiana Alderson was our interviews producer. And do remember to watch The Daily Climate Show with Anna on Sky News, especially in the run-up to COP26, where she's going to be extremely busy, where she will have all the climate news every weekday for you at 6.30. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and subscribe and even leave us a review. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review.
Marco's Cookbook and Speakeasy with Chef Justice Putnam. Netrootsradio.com Director Andrew McCabe, who was fired in 2018 by then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, has settled a lawsuit with the Justice Department getting his job back, his pension, back pay, so he can retire with all those benefits. The settlement resolves a civil lawsuit filed by McCabe, who argued his ouster was the result of a public vendetta driven by the former president who targeted him. You may recall that McCabe was fired more than three years ago, just day, hours before planned retirement. After the Justice Department's inspector general said he had lied repeatedly regarding a leak about Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. The case was referred to federal prosecutors who eventually decided not to pursue any charges against McCabe. And ever since, the former president has continued to attack McCabe. It was one of those moments in 2019. Well, I think Andrew McCabe has made a fool out of himself over the last couple of days. And he really looks to me like sort of a poor man's J. Edgar Hoover. He's a, uh, I think he's a disaster. And what he was trying to do was terrible, and he was caught. I'm very proud to say we caught him. So we'll see what happens, but he, uh, he is a disgraced man. He was terminated, not by me, he was terminated by others. Uh, the IG report was a disaster, a disaster from his standpoint. Anybody reading the IG report would say, how could a man like this be involved with the FBI. And the FBI has some of the greatest people, some of the finest people you'll ever meet. But this man is a complete disaster. The iron, of course, is the former president, is now the disaster. And the disgraced person, Andrew McCabe, joins us. He's a senior law enforcement analyst. His first interview since the settlement was reached. Andrew, uh, first of all, what does this mean for you and, and your family? Oh, my gosh. Um, Anderson, I, I can't tell you what what this has been like going through, what this whole vindictive uh, campaign has put my wife through, my children, my parents. Um, so to have a settlement of this lawsuit and one that so clearly indicates this should never have happened, um, it, it is both an incredible relief, it's, it's satisfying, but it's also 
You know, it's also kind of sad. I mean, like, this should never have happened. My family should never have had to go through this. Well, I mean, it's remarkable. I hadn't realized that you had had, I think it was on a Friday night, you were having, you'd had a, a meal with your family, essentially retirement uh, celebration with your family because you were retiring the next day. Uh, and the, they they fired you right before that, consciously, uh, you know, vindictively. What was it like to have the former president who doesn't know you? I mean, he, he has no idea of anything about you. Just pick you out of, you know, obscurity, uh, essentially, in, in terms of his knowledge of you and just focus on you and it attack was, you. It was so it was so bizarre, Anderson. It, it You know, in, on December 23rd of 2017, he tweeted out to the world that he was racing me to my retirement. I mean, to know that you essentially have a target on your back from the most powerful person in the world, the person that you ostensibly work for as a member of the executive branch. I mean, it was just a, it was like upside down world. Like you can't even, um, I, I can't even describe how terrifying and annoying and humiliating that is. But, you know, that's, that, that's what he subjected people through uh, for four years. It's also after a life of public service. I mean, it, there's, I'm sure a lot of people in your position could have long ago gone to a law firm or gone to do other work that would have been far more, um, you know, financially rewarding. Uh, you were serving the public and, and, and I mean, does your settlement with the Justice Department admit any kind of political influence on their part in your firing? Because it was obviously Jeff Sessions under pressure, putting DOJ under pressure that was sort of the ripple effects of that. Absolutely. I mean, this was very clearly an act of, of political, of, you know, vindication against a perceived political enemy, which wasn't even true. But nevertheless, that's what they did. The president demanded this and Jeff Sessions complied. And the rest of the Department of Justice complied as well. The inspector general delivered a truncated, rushed, uh, unfair report that left out material evidence. The FBI, knowing their process wouldn't conclude before I retired, rushed it, sped up the clock uh, to get done what the attorney general and the president were demanding. I mean, it's that's why this settlement, I mean, it's a great thing for my family, but I, I think it's a message to government employees, civil servants everywhere. This is the current Department of Justice standing up for fairness and standing up for the rule of law. Um, in the settlement agreement itself, they agree uh, that members of the executive branch should not interfere in internal political, uh, internal personnel matters because it creates the appearance of political influence. Well, that's exactly what happened here. The, the justification, as I mentioned at the time of your firing, was that a Department of Justice Inspector General's report said you had lied about a media leak to investigators. I know you've been on the record about this many times, but can you just briefly explain to people not familiar with the case what that was about? Yeah, sure. I was asked um, in, in two different interviews about what I knew about a release of information to, to a journalist uh, of a story in October of 2016. And in both cases, I, I misspoke um, uh, and then immediately after corrected the record, reached out to the folks that I, that I had spoken to and, and, and pointed them in the right direction, told them exactly what had happened. Um, never at any time did I intentionally mislead anyone about anything. And I think that's what today's result, finally, after all these years of saying this again and again and again, I think that's what this result uh, makes clear. In February of 2020, nearly two years after the investigation was opened into that allegation, prosecutors declined to bring 
any charges. That's 20 months to, to the day of this settlement. Did you expect it to take that long? Of course not. You know, the, the, the inspector general refers reports uh, to prosecutors all the time. They're typically turned around in days or weeks. Um, this went on for 20 months. Um, and I, and I, I personally believe uh, that it was necessary. It was necessary that it, for the Department of Justice to pursue this vindictive criminal prosecution to validate what they had done with my firing. Um, it was an effort to keep this story straight, to keep perpetuating this myth. It was incredibly damning. It's just lastly, uh, on the day it was announced that no charges would be filed against you, which was a huge day, you said on CNN, you said, I don't think I'll ever be free of this president and his maniacal rage that he's directed at me and my wife. Do you feel free today? I mean, I feel better, but I don't feel free. I mean, I don't, I, I don't kid myself to think that uh, the president is going to put aside his horrific judgment, his constant lying, and his tormenting of me and my family. I'm sure this will just add another log to the fire. He'll probably be saying all kinds of things about it tomorrow. But you know what? I'm, I'm just to the point where I don't care. I don't care what that guy has to say. It is Friday, the 15th of October of 2021. And you are in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. I am your chef de cuisine, Justice Putnam. Gunner, the English Bulldog, is our snoozing sous chef. And our daily special is Blue Moon Spirits Fridays because we are all Nighthawks in the Diner of Life. Yes, the virtual French 77s are all virtually mixed and poured for your virtual imbibing pleasure. So please do. It's virtual. <laughs> do whatever you want. Even in the virtual world, I should warn you, uh, do not drink more than two. It is a very potent spirit indeed. Hey, uh, what about that game? <laughs> yeah, I know. A lot of people aren't into ball games. But uh, this was the Dodgers and the Giants, and I used to see a lot of Dodger games when I was a kid because, well, I was a National League fan, and about the time that I could go to uh, baseball games on my own, uh, the American League had adopted the designated hitter, and I just thought that was a travesty. The pitcher doesn't come up to bat. This sounds like a Russian plot. And you know what? I, I was correct. Anyway, um, so I used to see a lot of Dodger games, even though I was a Giants fan. Willie Mays was my first, uh, well, sports hero. Would I uh, assign him as being my first hero? I don't know. Maybe. But, uh, yeah, Willie Mays, number 24. Yeah, I was just enthralled with Willie Mays. And that was even before I seen him on television or in person. Uh, by the time I became cognizant of the game, uh, truly cognizant of the game, he was already uh, towards the end of his career. But uh, I would listen to Giants games on the radio because we did not get television reception up in the Cascades back in the day when I was a kid. They had aerials then. <laughs> it was a lot different. But there was a fire hose uh, radio station, I believe it was KGO, right out of the Bay Area. And that was a loud signal. When I say fire hose, I'm saying that it was just, it was loud. Even on my little crystal radio set that I had built by myself when I was only eight. 
So uh, I used to listen to a lot of Don or uh, I'm sorry, Giants games on the radio when we lived up uh, in the Cascades. And then later on, uh, when we were mostly in the Willamette Valley, and I listened to the same KGO station. It was a Pyros. <laughs> Went right up that valley into our area. So I would listen to Willie Mays play, and I was astounded by his abilities as described on the radio. So any kind of news clip I could come upon uh, that showed Willie Mays, I just I, I devoured it. So I've always been a Giants fan. And I, yeah, I remember pulling for the Dodgers a few times when I'd go to see them. But I was uh, also, I would see when the Giants would come to town, and I'd be rooting for, for the Giants. And uh, so, this game last night, I'm wondering about the, uh, the quality of the umpiring. It seems that this past season and the season previous, you know, when they were pretty much locked down, and an abbreviated uh, season at that because of COVID. Um, the the quality of the umpiring is drastically diminished. And I was wondering if that was because they've been stacked with Federalist Society umpires. I just don't know. I just don't know. I will say that uh, John Roberts, still as a balls and strikes judge, is still a worse umpire than any of those that we saw during at least this series between the Dodgers and the Giants. So, uh, yeah, my relatives who were Dodgers fans had to gloat. But even they admitted that that was a terrible call at the end. You don't end a game, especially a game of that import, on a check swing. What the hell? Only a Federalist Society umpire would do that. Because, you know, the game's been around for a long time. A very long time. In fact, I umpired Little League and Pony Colt League when I was a younger man. Pretty much a high schooler. <laughs> but, And I wasn't that bad of an umpire. But I just got to say, to now purport that there's really no rule about what a check swing is. It's not breaking the wrist. It's not breaking the plane of the plate. What the hell? This game is over a hundred and some odd years old. And the check swing has been around forever. And everybody knows what a check swing is. One way that you can tell that it's not a, not a check swing is when the bat breaks the plane. Not of the plate. But of that line to first base. Or third, depending on whether you're a lefty. But you know what I mean. That is your visual clue. In the rule book, it does say intent. What was the batter's intent? And that's supposed to be a subjective analysis decided upon by the umpire. They are now mind readers, apparently, according to the rule book. But still. Even in that situation, Wilmer Flores did not offer to the ball. Everybody saw it. Even all those Dodger fans. Uh-huh. And, of course, uh, immediately it was brought up that it was all karma 
because Darren Ruff earlier, uh, actually during the season, I believe. Yes, it was during the season because it determined who would be in first place. And the Dodgers and Giants played and Darren Ruff had clearly swung at the ball on his check swing, but it was called not a check swing. And everybody says, ah, this is just karma. The game evens itself out. Now, I know you're not supposed to take out individual instances and say, well, there's this and there's that and there's this, because that's called pulling at straws. And if anybody read S.I. Hayakawa's Logic and Semantics back in the day, remember that. Yes, that you are old enough. Uh, pulling at straws is confirmation bias. Okay. They didn't. He didn't use that term, but that's what it is. So I know I may be pulling at straws, but if the game evens itself out, then I think the Dodgers still need to have a little bit of balance or not the Dodgers. The Giants still need a little bit of balance here because the game ended last year. I have a, I have a Yorkie poo in here making a bunch of noise because, well, she's a princess. Anyway, uh, the Giants season last year ended by a lousy call as well. A ball about two feet outside of the plate. And our guy, and I'm trying to think who, it's right on the tip of my tongue, but regardless, our guy didn't even swing and it was a called third strike. You're out of here. So where's the balance? How does it all balance out? Where's the karma? A lot of people said the karma was when Darren Ruff was called, uh, his check swing was called a check swing. A lot of people thought that was where the game balanced itself out. All right. Just saying. Just saying. And uh, there must be some sort of, well, there is a review of all the umpires. They'll go in and they'll look at the game and they'll say, well, this is where we got the call right. This is where we got the call wrong. The plate umpire will be graded on the uh, accuracy of the balls and strikes and fouls that were called. So uh, this particular plate umpire is 12th worst in the league for calling balls and strikes. And two other, two other umpires there on that crew are... 11th and 10th worst. So a game of this import, you would think that you would have a pretty good officiating crew. Not 10th, 11th, and 12th worst in the Empire Association to call the game. I think I, I would like to have, you know, the best. How about the best instead of the worst? I don't know. This is what happens when the Empire Association is stacked with Federalist Society umpires, probably over decades. They are just unrelenting, aren't they? And when I say they, I mean with a big capital T. Okay. Well, what's on the rest of the menu? Because there's so much more that we could be speaking about. Ah, you know, Texas getting back into the game of uh, hey you can't uh, you can't have an abortion because the Fifth Circuit was stacked with Federalist Society judges Trump appointees and a W one uh, you you can't have an abortion what vigilantes from out of state have the right to take these women to court 
and incarcerate them? Or how about women having miscarriages and being thrown into jail? Prove that it was a miscarriage. What? (laughs) Yeah, this is where we are. And this is what happens when you don't punch the Nazis. All right. And when you punch the Nazi, you have to be prepared to punch them again. Merrick Garland, I don't care how it looks. All right. And this uh, SCOTUS commission that Biden had uh, commissioned, you think it looks bad because if they increase the members of the court, it'll look bad because it might look partisan. Well, the court's already partisan. It already is. All right. Especially when you got somebody like Alito going out there saying, oh, all these crazy liberals and starts spouting off QAnon conspiracy theories. How does that look? It looks bad, doesn't it? You know why? Because it is bad. Already. But we're always afraid to pull the trigger on all these, aren't we? Look at Mary Garland. He's afraid. He's probably got this OLC memo that says anybody who tried to overthrow the United States government for Donald Trump can't be convicted of any crime and they should just get a slap on the wrist. Uh, Let them go home, maybe wear an ankle bracelet for a week. They even let a guy out so that he could go see a football game. (laughs) All right. I just don't think that anybody who got arrested for Antifa or Black Lives Matter protests, even though it's been proven that the the city's on fire, all those fires were started by agent provocateurs, right-wing Nazis, some dressed up at, in black block clothes and saying, oh, that was Antifa. Now that's black block. And they're full of agent provocateurs. Those people are still in jail. They don't get even they don't even get to get out for a dead relative or a dying relative. They're letting these guys out. Oh, I gotta go see a football game. I bought the ticket a long time ago. Oh well, we have to let them go. All right. Enough of that rant. We could go on and on and on about it. But on the rest of the menu here of the curated part of this show, at the top, yes, former FBI director Andrew McCabe has finally won back his full pension as part of a settlement of the lawsuit arising from his vindictive political firing by Trump. Trump says, I didn't fire him. Jeff Sessions did. Yeah, right. Yeah, Luca Brazzi killed those people, but who told him to? On the rest of the menu, nursing schools see a rise in applications despite COVID burnout. The Texas abortion law is shutting down an avenue to the courts for teens. And the wreck of a storied military ship that served in two world wars and at one point was captained by the first black man to command a U.S. government vessel has been found. After the break, we move to the chef's table, where the lawyer representing Myanmar's ousted leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, said authorities have imposed a gag order on him. 
Because anything he might say about the trial could de- destabilize the country. I wonder why. And seized guns have been melted down and turned into a children's playground in Peru. All that and more. On West Coast, cookbook and speakeasy. Bon Appetit. Bottom of our homepage at netrootsradio.com to the right of the page is the chat room link, and the chat room is monitored by Kelly Lincoln. Thank you, Kelly. Across the page near the bottom at netrootsradio.com is the link to our Patreon site. And if you could become a recurring Patreon to Netroots Radio, and if you could send us the equivalent of what you might spend on an espresso type coffee drink, uh, once a month, that helps us pay our bills, fly under the radar, and continue this resistance against the Nazi takeover of America, because that's exactly what it is. But we thank you for your generosity, and look, we're going to be counting on your generosity in the future, so thank you. Thank you. If you would like to follow Netroots Radio on Twitter, you can do so at Netroots Radio. Tom takes care of that. Thank you, Tom. Follow me on Twitter at Justice Putnam. I post the show notes and links diary about 10 minutes before showtime and get that linked up on Twitter and those other social media platforms. Follow the show on Twitter at Cookbook West. And if you would, please do pick up podcasts by way of Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart, YouTube, iTunes, and wherever podcasts can be found. All right. This uh, first offering comes out of the Associated Press, and it is by Pat Eaton Robb. As we begin here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, Blue Moon Spirits Fridays. Nurses around the U.S. are getting burned out by the COVID-19 crisis and quitting, yet applications to nursing schools are rising, driven by what educators say are young people who see the global emergency as an opportunity and a challenge. Among them is University of Connecticut sophomore Brianna Monte, a 19-year-old from Mahapak, New York, who has been considering majoring in education, but decided on nursing after watching nurses care for her 84-year-old grandmother, who was diagnosed last year with COVID-19 and also had cancer. They were switching out their protective gear in between every patient, running like crazy to make sure all of their patients were attended attended to, she said. I had that moment of clarity that made me want to jump right into health care and join the workers on the front line. Nationally, enrollment in bachelor's, master's, and doctoral nursing programs increased 5.6% in 2020 from the year before, to just over 250,000 students, according to the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. 
figures for the current 21-22 school year will not be available until January, but administrators say they have continued to see a spike in interest. The University of Michigan Nursing School reported getting about 1,800 applications from 100 or four 150 freshman slots this year, compared with about 1,200 in 2019. Marie Nolan, executive vice dean of the John Hopkins University School of Nursing in Baltimore, said it has seen its biggest number of applicants ever many of them applying even before vaccine was available, despite her worries that COVID-19 would scare away students. Students at those and other schools have been able to gain valuable hands-on experience during the pandemic, doing COVID-19 testing and contact tracing, and working at community vaccination clinics. We've said to students, this is a career opportunity that you'll never see again, Nolan said. Emma Champlin, a first-year nursing student at Fresno State, said like many of her classmates, she saw the pandemic as a chance to learn critical care skills and then apply them. And she is young, and her immune system is fine, she said. So the idea of getting the virus didn't scare me. Well, that's the arrogance of youth now, isn't it? It is. It's just time for us to step in and give it our all and figure out how we can help because there has to be a new generation and that's got to be us, the 21-year-old said. The higher enrollment could help ease a nursing shortage that existed even before COVID-19, but it has brought its own problems. The increase, combined with the departure of too many experienced nurses whose job is to help train students, has left many nursing programs without the ability to expand. The rise is happening even as hospital leaders around the U.S. report that thousands of nurses have quit or retired during the outbreak, many of them exhausted and demoralized because of the pressure of caring for dying, hostility from patients and families, and the frustration in knowing that many deaths were preventable by the way of masks and vaccinations. Eric Kumar saw many of his nursing colleagues from a COVID-19 unit in Lansing, Michigan, transfer or take other jobs this past spring when the pandemic's third wave began to hit. He followed them out the door in July. It was like a mass exodus. Everybody chose their own health and wellness over dealing with another wave, he said. He said he plans on returning to health care someday, but for now is working at a barbecue joint where the worst thing that can happen is burning a brisket. I'm not done with nursing yet, he said. Betty Joe Rocio, chief nursing officer for Mercy Health, which runs hospitals and clinics in Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, and Oklahoma, said her system has about 8,500 nurses, but is losing about 160 each month. The departures are also taking their toll on nursing education, which relies on clinical instructors and preceptors, the experienced hands-on nurses who matter who mentor students on the job. Nursing faculty is expected to shrink by 25% by 2025 across the country as nurses retire or leave because of burnout or other reasons. 
Mindy Scheibler, a cardiac nurse from Vancouver, Washington, taught nursing students for three years before quitting in 2016. She said she would still love to be teaching, but that it's not workable financially. She said she knows nursing professors who work multiple jobs or dip into their retirement savings. How long can you subsidize your own job, she said. Nurses will make double what you make in just a few years out out the gate. Administrators said they would like to see more financial incentives, such as tax breaks for instructors. Rocio said it would also help to have national licensing instead of state-by-state requirements, giving health systems more flexibility in its training and hiring. Chaplain, the Fresno State student now doing clinical studies in a COVID-19 ward, said the stress, even on students, is sometimes overwhelming. It's physically and mentally tiring to don cumbersome protective equipment every time you enter someone's room and then watch as a tube is inserted down the frightened patient's throat and the person is hooked up to a ventilator. I don't even know when it will stop, she said. Is this the new normal? I think the scariness of it has worn off at this point, and now we're all just exhausted, she confessed. That has had me reconsider at times my career choice. Monte, whose grandmother survived, said she believes the pandemic is waning and hopes to have a long career, no matter what the challenges. They do have this nursing shortage right now, which selfishly is good for me because I won't have trouble finding a job wherever I decide to go, she said. I feel like I won't get burned out, even if we have another national emergency. I feel I'll still be committed to nursing. Astrid Galvin and Lindsay Whitehurst of the Associated Press bring us this next offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Veronica Granado anxiously stood before the judge knowing that if she said something wrong, things could end badly for her. But the 17-year-old hadn't committed a crime. She had not filed a lawsuit. Granado was in a Texas court that day to ask permission to get an abortion. She was among thousands of teens burdened with additional hurdles to legal abortion care, especially if they are of color or live in states where abortion access is already severely limited. 38 states require some form of parental consent or notice for anyone under 18 to get an abortion. Of those, nearly all, including Texas, offer an alternative pleading with a judge for permission to bypass that consent. But the latest restrictions in Texas that essentially ban abortion past the six-week pregnancy mark have made such requests almost impossible. The process to go before a judge includes a required sonogram and and setting a hearing that can take weeks. By then, women are often past the six-week mark. 
And as other states capitalize on the success of the Texas law and set their own restrictions, those few avenues are getting shut off. Supporters of parental consent laws say parents should have a say in the medical procedure, but teens seeking abortion often face abuse or threats of homelessness if they tell their parents or guardians they are pregnant. Said Rosan Marapuram, executive director of Jane's Due Process, the nation's first organization dedicated to helping youths navigate the process of going through a judge, and one of only a few nationwide. They work with about 350 women a year in Texas, roughly 10% are in foster care, and 80% are youths of color. Most are past six weeks from when they first come in. Young girls who have only had their period for a few years are not likely to track it. Athletes tend to have irregular periods, and sometimes when girls go on birth control, they experience spotting, which they may confuse for a period. All of these factors often lead to minors and adults, too, to miss early signs of pregnancy. Kenzie Reynolds was 17 and a high school junior when she found out she was pregnant. Her relationship was toxic and deeply controlling, and she could not tell her family about being pregnant or wanting to get an abortion because they are devout Christians and oppose the procedure. She tried before to tell her mother she wanted to be on birth control, but her mom consistently avoided the conversation. She found Jane's due process, but it would be four weeks before she could even see a judge to make her case. The worst part of the entire thing was how terrible I felt and how isolated I felt, she said. A month later, she stood before the judge and told him about her toxic relationship, her desperation and terror, but the judge denied the request. He walked by me like I wasn't even there, she said. I felt like he didn't see me as a person. Well, she could have appealed. She was 10 weeks along at that point, too late to take an abortion pill, and the appeal was still uncertain. Instead, she connected with a group, Lilith Fund, for a flight to New Mexico, where she got the procedure and flew back the same day. At the end of it, I realized I was considered too young to have an abortion, but old enough to raise a child. brings us this final offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, Blue Moon Spirits Fridays. The wreck of a storied military ship that served in two world wars, performed patrols in waters off Alaska for decades, 
and at one point was captained by the first black man to command a U.S. government vessel, has been found, the Coast Guard said yesterday Thursday. The wreck, thought to be the U.S. revenue cutter Bear, which sank in 1963 about 260 miles east of Boston, as it was being told towed to Philadelphia, where it was going to be converted into a floating restaurant, was located in 2019. But it was only in August that a team of experts looking at the evidence came to the conclusion that they are reasonably certain that the wreck is indeed the bear. Officials of the Coast Guard and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said at a waterfront news conference in Boston, at the time of the loss of Bear, it was already recognized as a historic ship. Joe Hoyt, the of the Office of National Mar- Marine Sanctuary, said, The legend of the bear is so ingrained in Coast Guard lore that the sports teams at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut are named the Bears, partly in honor of the vessel. Built in 1874, the steam and sail-powered bear was purchased by the U.S. in 1884 to take part in the search of the ill-fated Arctic expedition led by Lieutenant Adolphus Greeley, a member of the U.S. Army's Signal Corps. The 190-foot bear then spent more than four decades patrolling the Arctic, performing search and rescue, law enforcement operations, conducting censuses of people and ships, recording geological and astronomical information, recording tides, and escorting whaling ships. The U.S. Revenue Cutter Service merged with the U.S. Life Saving Service in 1915 to form the Coast Guard. During the Bears' 40-year career in Alaska, the Cutter performed some of the most daring and successful Arctic rescues in history, Said William Thiessen, uh, the Coast Guard Atlantic Area's official historian, when malnourished Native Americans needed food, Bear brought it. When stranded whalers needed rescue, Bear saved them. One hundred years ago, when thousands of Alaskans contracted the Spanish flu during the pandemic, Bear brought doctors and medicines. Thursday's announcement coincided with the arrival in Boston of the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Healy, Named after the Bears' captain from 1886 until 1895, the Healy, an icebreaker commissioned in 1999, recently completed a transit of the Arctic Northwest Passage. Healy was born in 1839, was the son of a Georgia plantation owner and a slave. Healy's father sent him to Massachusetts to escape enslavement. He likened the Healy commissioned by Abraham Lincoln a month before the president's assassination to an old West sheriff whose jurisdiction was an area the size of the lower 48 states. While he never, during his lifetime, self-identified as African-American, perhaps to avoid the prejudice he likely would have encountered in his personal life and career, he was in reality the first person of African-American descent to command a ship of the U.S. government. Even after its time in the Arctic was over, Bear's career continued. The ship saw service during both world wars, patrolling Greenland's waters in World War II and helping capture a German spy vessel 
Between the wars, the bear was repurposed as a maritime museum by the city of Oakland, California, used as a movie set, and purchased by Admiral Richard Byrd for use in his Antarctic expeditions. The ship was decommissioned in 1944 and remained in Nova Scotia until its trip to Philadelphia ended prematurely in 1963, about 90 miles south of Cape Sable, Nova Scotia. Bear had served in various capacities for nearly 90 years, a remarkable record for a ship built of wood. Well, that brings us to our break. And when we get back from that break, we will go through weather from around the world. And we will finish up with the stories that we've curated for you today. You are listening to West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. And we will be right back. You are listening to NetworksRadio.com. Please hang up and try again. From a point at sea to the circles of your mind, a new force is at work for planetary transformation. New radio for a new Earth. This is Scientific American's 60 Second Science. I'm Shayla Farzan. Many plants and animals use temperature and other environmental cues like a calendar, letting them know when it's time to bloom or find a mate. But climate change is disrupting these natural rhythms worldwide, from songbird migration across North America to plankton growth cycles in Norway to a hillside of wildflowers in Missouri. So if we head on out, you can notice there are a number of different species that have popped up. Dwarf crested iris, blue phlox, Canadian wood bedney. Matthew Austin is a postdoctoral researcher with the Living Earth Collaborative at Washington University. This patch of forest, about 40 miles west of St. Louis, is covered with native wildflowers throughout the spring and summer. But the timing of when they bloom has changed in recent decades, Austin says. We see that a warming climate is not only causing flowers to bloom earlier. In many species, it's also causing them to end flowering later. Missouri wildflowers are blooming up to a week longer than they used to, compared to data collected in the 1930s and 40s. And that's created a late summer pileup of species flowering all at once. Meanwhile, bumblebees and other pollinators are flitting from species to species, says Nicole Miller-Strutman, a biologist at Webster University. When a pollinator makes a decision about who it's going to visit, that influences the pollen that they're carrying on their body. And flowers, not too surprisingly, don't really want pollen from another plant species. A flower that gets pollen from the wrong species may not be able to reproduce, or it could push some to self-pollinate, an extreme form of inbreeding. To understand how this might affect reproduction, Matthew Austin has been pollinating hundreds of Missouri wildflowers by hand this year. Some experimental flowers get pollen from their own species. Others get pollen from different plant species to simulate what's happening now, as climate change causes that pileup of species blooming at the same time. To keep pollinators from visiting his flowers, he slips sheer mesh bags over the buds before they open. But just as he removes the bag to tap pollen onto the flower's sticky stigma, a tiny bee lands on it. Oh no. (laughs) Well, a pollinator got on this one while I had it unbagged. They're sneaky. So, 
this will not be included in my study, but thankfully there's another one right here. He moves on to the next flower, a human meticulously doing the work of a bee. It's a slow process, but Austin hopes the results will help us understand how climate change is reshaping this complicated ecosystem. For Scientific American's 60 Second Science, I'm Shayla Farzan. Hi, I'm Tom Hartman, and since you're listening to NetRootsRadio.com, show your progressive side and go to the Donate button on the bottom of the homepage. It's progressives like you who power NetRoots Radio and keep the progressive message beaming everywhere 24 hours a day. Just go to our Donate button at the bottom of NetRootsRadio.com. Thank you for keeping progressive radio at full power. Are congressional elections rigged? I'm Tom Harbin, and this is the Civil Liberties Minute with ACLU attorney Bill Newman. Consider Texas, which has had 36 congressional districts and due to the 2020 census, now will have 38, and where, under the new map drawn by the legislature, 35 of the 38 seats, 35, 92 percent, are designed to not be remotely competitive. 92 percent, thanks to what's called packing and cracking. Packing means packing persons with similar voting patterns into one district. Cracking means breaking up such a group into so many different districts that they can't really influence the outcome in any one. With sophisticated computer programs, these numbers can be calculated and predicted with surgical accuracy. And they have been. Placing the 2020 election results into the new districts shows that Trump would have won 23 of the 38 by double digits, and Biden would have won 12 by double digits, meaning that only three of the 38 had a margin of 10 points or less. In addition, despite the very large growth in the Latino population, the new map has no majority Latino district. In 2019, the Supreme Court 5-4 ruled that they would do nothing to interfere with partisan gerrymandering. So in Texas, and in every state where that's the norm, you will now be able to know the results of congressional elections before any ballots are cast. How, you might ask, can you call such a system a democracy? The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the ACLU, because democracy and advocacy begin with you, and freedom can't defend itself. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1990. That was the day that President George H.W. Bush signed the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Worker safety at the Nevada nuclear test site had been sacrificed during the Cold War era as the United States rushed to keep pace with the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal. The result was an increase in cancers, including leukemia, from workers being exposed to deadly radiation. For more than a decade, these workers tried to get Congress to pass legislation for compensation for radiation sickness. Uranium miners from states including Nevada, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming also joined the effort filing a suit against the government. The courts ruled against the workers, ruling that national security needs trumped the safety of workers. Democratic Representative Wayne Owens from Utah sponsored a bill to give the workers compensation. In a statement carried by the New York Times, Representative Owens called the bill, quote, an apology to those people and their heirs on behalf of the government and the American people that were subjected and sacrificed for the Cold War nuclear weapons. 
President Bush explained the scope of the act at the signing ceremony, saying, quote, The bill provides compassionate payments to persons with specified diseases who fear that their health was harmed because of the fallout from atmospheric atomic testing at the Nevada test site. Regardless of whether causation can be scientifically established, the bill entitles each person meeting specific criteria to a payment of $50,000. Uranium miners meeting separate criteria will be entitled to compassionate payments in the amount of $100,000. The bill established a $100 million fund for the workers and residents who lived downwind of the Nevada test site. Thank you for accompanying us here to the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Blue Moon Spirits Fridays because we are all Nighthawks in the diner of life. We always begin, whether from around the world, along the banks of the Rogue River and the Rogue River Valley of Southern Oregon on the west coast of the continental United States of America, where it is currently 35 degrees Fahrenheit, expecting to be a bit warmer than yesterday, plentiful sunshine with highs in the mid-70s, winds light and variable, clear to partly cloudy overnight with lows in the low 40s, winds light and variable, and partly cloudy skies tomorrow with highs in the upper 70s. And then we're looking for some considerable rain on Sunday and into Monday. Confirmed cases of coronavirus in Jackson County in the southern part of Oregon continue to rise. We now stand at 225,080, and our deceased has jumped by over a dozen and now stands at 300. Ragweed pollen is rated moderate right outside the window in Rogue River proper. The air quality index for the region is good at 21 parts per million, and that daytime UV index has now moved into the low range. It must be fall and is at level two. First time we've seen that this year. Barometric pressure is holding steady at 30.24 inches. Visibility is at 8 miles. And relative humidity is at 100%. Weather from around the world is brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that a crowd crowdsources from around the world. London is 58 and mostly cloudy. Paris is 63 and partly cloudy. Rome is 68 and sunny. Kiev is 54 and fair. Kabul is 60 degrees and clear. Hong Kong is 75 and cloudy. Tokyo is 70 degrees and partly cloudy. Sydney, Australia is 58 and clear. San Francisco, California is 53 degrees and sunny. And New York, New York is 71 degrees Fahrenheit and sunny. And that is weather from around the world, brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that a crowd crowdsources from around the world. 
staff at Reuters brings us this Bruce Demus Bush here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. The head lawyer representing Myanmar's ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi said today that authorities in the military ruled country had imposed a gag order on him because they said his communications could cause instability. Myanmar state media has not reported developments in Suki's multiple legal cases filed after she was ousted in a February coup, and her lawyer, Kim Mong Saw, has been the only source of public information on her trial and her well-being. He said in a Facebook post he'd been barred from speaking to media, diplomats, international organizations, and foreign governments, and later posted details of the order. King Mongzha's communications may cause harassment, hurting a person who is acting in accordance with the law, may cause riots, and destabilize the public peace, the order said. Some local and me- foreign media outlets, illegal media outlets, and the media are inciting fake information that could destabilize the country, the order continued. A spokesman for the ruling military did not answer calls seeking comment. Suki has been held in an undisclosed location since the February 1 coup, with no means of communicating with the outside world other than through her lawyers, who she meets only in court. She is charged with a litany of offenses, including breaking coronavirus protocols, illegally importing and possessing two-way radios, incitement to cause public alarm, and violating the official's secret act. Je te donne mon amour pour la vie entière La promesse de me trouver à tes genoux Aussitôt que tu m'appelles Rester toujours fidèle C'est tout C'est tout Je te donne tous mes printemps Mes étés de mer Mes automnes Quand les feuilles tombent partout Si ce n'est pas une bonne affaire, je te donne tous mes hivers. Enrique Mondawano of Reuters brings us this final amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Children squealed and laughed as they played on seesaws and swings at a new playground in Peru built from guns seized by law enforcement. More than 5,000 arms were melted to create seesaws, monkey bars, swings, and even exercise machines at the park in Lima, officials said. This playground is a dream, said Danitza Vilka, a coordinator with the Neighborhood Council. It is a dream come true thanks to the guns which were previously used to commit crimes, to murder. Now these guns are used for the good of our children. The creation of the park was a collaboration between local residents and the Andean Country's Arms Control Body, the S-U-C-A-M-E-C, known as Sukamek. The seized guns were melted down and repurposed by a steel company. Well, that is good. Let's do it here now. 
All right, that brings us to the end of our broadcast period for the day and the week. But you do know Netroots Radio broadcasts on, and we will meet up here on Monday for River City Hash Mondays. So do stay tuned to Netroots Radio all day and all night for all the breaking news as it breaks. And we'll meet up here on Monday, right here, in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bon Appetit. Je voudrais du soleil vert, des dentelles et des théères, des photos de bord de mer, de mon jardin d'hiver. Je voudrais de la lumière, comme en Nouvelle-Angleterre. Je veux changer d'atmosphère, de mon jardin d'hiver. Du frais d'Astère, revoir un latte coère. Je voudrais toujours te plaire dans mon jardin d'hiver. Je veux déjeuner par terre, comme au long de golfe clair. T'embrasser les yeux ouverts dans mon jardin d'hiver. Please leave us a review on iTunes.
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.